This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 617. And the quote of the day is, when you know what you want and you want it badly enough, you'll find a way to get it. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 617, and I am ridiculously excited about this episode. I got my man, Mr. Steve Gorman, and he is the original longtime drummer for the Black Crows, one of my all-time favorite bands ever. And first of all, uh, thank you, George Slepik, for for connecting us. I really appreciate that. And this is a great episode. We talk about how he didn't start playing drums until he was later in life. So not later in life, but he didn't start when he was two or five. Like you hear a lot of people on the podcast. In fact, he grew up playing sports and, and, but always knew that he wanted to be a drummer And the way that he started his career is amazing. I'll let him tell the whole story, but there's a lot of lessons inside of, of this episode about uh, about the business and about fame and success and and different things like that. And again, Black Crows are one of my favorite bands ever. So to have Steve on the podcast uh, is is a very awesome opportunity for me. And I hope you dig it as much as I enjoyed recording it. And I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Mr. Steve Gorman. Steve, what's happening, man? Uh, well, let's see. It is a cooler than normal day in May, which means uh, I appreciate the lack of humidity, but my allergies are on fire. So apologies up front for how many times I'm about to sneeze during the next uh, bit of this conversation. <laughs> Don't worry. We won't hold it against you. Where are you in the world right now anyway? Nashville, Tennessee. And you were in LA for a little while too, right? Briefly, uh, we were out there f- 2002, three, and four, and then and then got came to Nashville in 2004, and have never looked back. We came here with the idea of we're here to stay, and that's been the case now for 17 years. Gotcha. And Nashville is interesting to me because I know years ago there was this big move for everyone moving to LA, in, you know, the early 2000s, and then it seems like there's a lot of people moving there again now. And it always felt like a manageable city to me. It's affordable. There's a lot of opportunity there. There's also a lot of competition as well. But is it still as manageable of a city as it used to be? Yeah, it it, it still is, despite the boom of the last decade, which has truly been like otherworldly, how insane that's been. But, um, you know, we are, uh, I, I grew up about an hour north of here. And mm-hmm. so, you know, like Nashville was always just, you know, that's where I came for concerts and to use an airport, you know, as a kid. Um, and so, you know, it was, so it was a place I was always very familiar with. And, uh, and, you know, it was something that my wife and I talked about moving here for years, never once thinking about it in terms of a boomtown or for the not even so much for the music, but just it was a cool town that we both were had a lot of friends and family nearby. So um, it certainly was nice to get here and realize like, oh, I know a ton of people here. And yeah, I started doing sessions right away, started doing gigs right away. You know, mm-hmm. then they're like, oh, yeah. And it's also really works as a musician, too. But we kind of came at it backwards as far as that goes. Do you think that now 
given the world of, I mean, let's take COVID out of the, out of the picture because, uh, you know, that's not going to be something that lasts forever, but is, do you still feel the need for musicians to live in a Nashville, Los Angeles, Miami, New York area, or do you think they can live in Sheboygan? Oh, no. I think more than certainly easier than ever, you can do Sheboygan. I mean, Nashville is it is still easy here, though, and there is still so much that you can get done just by like I've said, told the story a bunch. But like the first week we moved here, I got my first session because I bumped into a guy at a coffee shop and he had literally just a, a producer I knew. And and he walked in to grab a cup of coffee and I walk in and he goes, Hey, what are you doing here? I said, I just moved here. And he goes, could you do a session tomorrow? My drummer just bailed out on me. And, you know, it's like that easy. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it still is the kind of place where seven nights a week, someone's playing live music somewhere. And you can just, you can get your, you can get established here really quickly and you can meet people and you can kind of figure out if there's a path for you. But yeah, for the most part, um, it's just gotten easier and easier and easier for people to be wherever the hell they want to be for mm -hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. So you're obviously not originally from Nashville, uh, but you were born in Michigan, but then sort of cut your teeth in Bowling Green, right? Well, it was Michigan family. When I was a baby, we moved to just south of Baltimore, Maryland. So I lived there till I was 10. And then at 10 years old, we moved to a town called Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Got you. Um, and then Bowling Green, Kentucky is just where I went to college for three and a half years at Western Kentucky University. So I actually, you know, like from fifth grade through high school was Hopkinsville. And then I went to college in Bowling Green and then I moved to Atlanta and it's just been pretty busy ever since. Mm -hmm. What talk to me about, about growing up and and because I'm I take it that because you have a sports show as well or, you know, you're, you're into sports as well. So was there a was there something some sort of like dichotomy with you uh being a musician and being an athlete when you were younger? Well, no, because I wasn't a musician. I was just an athlete who wanted to be a musician. Um, Got I, I, I grew up, I'm the youngest of eight kids and five of my older siblings are brothers. And so we were always playing whatever sport was in season or whatever gear we could get our hands on. So, you know, like my memories as a kid in Maryland are we had a garage with bowling lockers because my dad had worked for the Brunswick Bowling Company. Mm -hmm. Everybody had their own locker. And so there was eight lockers in the garage and six of them nice. were filled with baseball bats and gloves and lacrosse sticks and basketballs and footballs and soccer balls. And it was just, we had a big backyard and that's just what we did. We just grew up playing games, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, little league baseball, like anybody, I started playing soccer first. That was my first team sport when I was in first grade. So I was yeah, six years too. old. And, you know, didn't get into basketball till I moved to Kentucky, but that's kind of a requirement when you get to a small town in Kentucky, especially in the mid seventies. And, oh, basketball uh, was the requirement. Oh yeah. 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 Basketball is, oh yeah. Kentucky's not a football state by any stretch. It's all right. basketball there. Um, and we lived right on the Tennessee state line and it's truly incredible. The difference five miles can make between basketball and football, like the, the level of play for high school basketball in Kentucky versus the Tennessee schools right across the state. It was like night and day. And then converse, conversely, the Tennessee teams in football were way better. So, hmm. but I, I, you know, I just grew up in the, you know, in the driveway shooting hoops and in the backyard playing other games. Um, but always obsessively listening to records and thinking from the age of literally five, like I'm, I'm a drummer. I, I'm not doing anything about it. I don't have a drum kit. Nobody's taking me seriously, but by God, I'm going to, I'm going to do this one day. And this is what I'm supposed to do. I had that sense very early in life, but 
being in my family, being, um, and then especially from the age of 10 in a really small town in Kentucky, it wasn't like I could go to school and find a bunch of guys that wanted to start a band with me. And I could always find a pickup game and I could always, you know, go, mm-hmm. g- let's go cruise the boulevard on Friday night and listen to loud records. I mean, there were things that everybody was into, but I just didn't know anybody else that wanted to be in a band that wanted to jump in to, you know, anything like that. So it just, you know, there was no path that I could find. I couldn't see, um, I couldn't see any way to do it. Whereas, you know, sports is everywhere and everybody's playing sports. Everybody's watching sports. But, uh, when I got to college, so in the fall of 1983, I started, uh, my freshman year at Western Kentucky university and immediately met a bunch of friends who loved records and bands like I did. You know, you just find your people eventually. And, the idea of getting together and playing music then suddenly I had people who were saying, yeah, that'd be cool. But my problem was I didn't have a drum kit. I didn't have a dime to my name. (laughs) I was in college on a Pell grant. So it wasn't like, you know, going and finding a drum kit and buying it was something that was going to happen anytime soon either. Right. Um, Had you played the drums before that though? uh, A couple, literally a couple of times. Um, I had a, I had two different guys I knew in Hopkinsville that owned drum kits. And the first time I sat at a kit, for more than like 30 seconds, uh, my buddy Clint Steele, who years later called me and asked me to move to Atlanta with him and start a band. And that's what got me there in the first place. Mm-hmm. When we were in high school, my senior year of high school, I went to Clint's house. He had a drum kit and I sat down and I put on headphones and he put on a cassette tape of physical graffiti and I played along to Cashmere. That's the first thing I ever played along to. Really? Um, and this was a, a lifetime spent watching drummers, air drumming. And, and always being kind of consumed with it and knowing that I could do it. Like, I just knew. Uh, it's funny because, you know, people in life often think like, oh, I'm supposed to play in the NBA or I'm supposed to be a painter or I'm going to go to law school. And then reality gets in the way. And with me, looking back now, luckily, it's like I didn't think of myself as a guy that might be a drummer one day. I literally thought I'm already a drummer. I'm just not doing anything about it yet. Like that's really how I felt my whole really? life. So there was and never like ambitions of playing professional baseball or, or no. anything well, like that. Basketball. By the time I was in high school, basketball was, was what I thought maybe could lead somewhere. And, you know, I, I just kept waiting for that growth spurt that didn't really come. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still I'm, waiting on it. Yeah, well, I'm 6'3", but when I graduated high oh, school... Oh, man, I don't want to hear any complaints from but, you. Well, but when I graduated <laughs> high school, I was like six feet and a half. You know, I grew two and a half inches in college. And I was oh, wow. like, which is a big drag because I was like, I could have used this back in high school. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> my body, like the year I turned 18, I grew a couple more inches and I got just naturally stronger and I got hops like crazy. Suddenly I was jumping out of the gym and I'm like, well, this is great, but I'm playing intramural basketball in college. It's kind of a waste, you know? Um, but no, I, I never, I never had any realistic thought of, of sports being something I would do at a high level at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the good thing about getting to college was suddenly I'm going to see bands in clubs. Um, before that, if I went to a concert, it was like a big concert, like in an arena, right. you know, uh, because you couldn't get into a club at 15 years old. But once mm-hmm. I was in college and I started seeing bands up close, you know, little local bands in Nashville that nobody had ever heard of, or or I would go see a band like the Violent Femmes in a club, you know, and just see like, oh, wait okay, this is how this works. Like you don't start off as earth, wind and fire in an arena. You know what I right, mean? Like, right. you, oh, and then, you know, seeing REM and the DBs and Let's Active and Jason and the Scorchers, a lot of Southern indie music in the early 80s. When I first started seeing all those bands, that's when it really, 
my freshman year of college, 83, 84 is when it just crystallized like, oh, not only do I want to do this, but I can see how you do it. And now I'm going to admit to myself that I have to do this. It became a, kind of an obsession with me. And and mm-hmm. I still, not not an obsession that I did much about because my goal was always to be in a band, not to right. be in a bunch of bands. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted my REM or my Beatles or my U2. I wanted my band. And mm-hmm. And it was more a question of just waiting for the guys I trusted or felt best about. And I met people in college who were like, oh, we should get together and jam. And I had friends who had, you know, who played bass and guitars. And I would borrow someone's drum kit and we would get together and play. And we would even go like play a house party. You know, there was a a group called Alfred and the Stately Wayne Manors that my older brother had put together for years. And it was all like an art project. They never played a show. They just pretended to be a band, and then they always had to cancel their concerts due to illness or injury. Mm-hmm. It was just shtick. They ran forever. <laughs> and then as soon as I got to as soon as I got to Bowling Green, you know, he's like, hey, wait, you actually can play drums. Now we can actually be a real band. So that turned into an occasional house party band. Oh, we just learned like 20 covers, like Ramones mm-hmm. and Clash songs. And we just played them. And I played the same beat in every song. I just sped up or slowed down, depending on what it felt like it needed. Right. You know, I, I didn't know hey, what Phil I was- Phil Rudd did it for- you know, uh, years. Damn straight. <laughs> well, yeah, nobody was complaining. Trust me. Like right. <laughs> I would, I wouldn't play a fill to save my life, but I could play a straight beat, you know? Um, and I just, I, you know, but I would do that and come away from it saying, guys, let's get serious. Let's do this. Let's do this. And my friends would look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm a journalism student. You know I mean? They had like a life plan already and I just right. had no concept of wanting to really do anything other than And you this. were a broadcast major too, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I was majoring in broadcasting, but I was to say I was taking it seriously would be an incredibly uh an incredible overstatement. I was I was in broadcasting because I just thought, well, I people tell me I have a good voice mm-hmm. and I guess I could be a sportscaster. I mean, I know I I like sports, I watch sports, I I've been doing a sportscaster voice with my brothers our whole life, you know, like in my house as a kid, if we were watching the Orioles game, there's five guys in a room going, and now stepping into the plate, here's Brooks Robinson, 16-time Gold Glove winner. You know, all of us are announcing the game. <laughs> right. And it's just you could be a sportscaster. <laughs> you know, it's just stuff you do. But, you know, when I got to college and I realized Western's got a really good broadcasting school and, oh, wait, that is a career choice. And people keep telling me I should come up with one of those one day. So, you know, my, my idea to be a sportscaster was – was based on solely thinking, well, I could do it and it would be cool to see games. I mean, that's, that's a great job, but, Mm -hmm. but my genuine desire in life never changed. It was just, I want to be in a band. And, um, so I was a senior starting my fourth year of college. I wouldn't have graduated in four years. I would have needed a fifth year. But so at the start of what was my fourth year of school, um, you know, in September of that fall, my buddy Clint, the guy who had first let me sit at his drum kit a few years earlier when we were in high school. He was in college up in Massachusetts and he called me in my dorm. And I look back and I'm like, how in the world did he find out the phone number to my dorm room? Like who did he call to get that? And long distance calls were expensive. Like how much work went into that phone call? (laughs) And, and, and the fact that I was even there was a miracle. I didn't, Mm -hmm. it's not like I had an answering machine or anything. For all I know, he'd been (laughs) calling me for like a month before I finally was in the room at the time. Yeah. But, you know, I said, what's up? And he said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to start a band. You're drumming, right? And I just went, I, I, and I, it was really one of those moments in life where I, 
the second he said that, I knew. I was like, oh my God, the biggest door of all time just opened and I'm going to run through it. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. And you know, his first idea was, because he was up at Hampshire, Hampshire College, he said, well, let's go to Boston. The scene's amazing there. And we can get a you know, we can get a cheap apartment somewhere. We'll all crash, mm-hmm. but there's he a was great- like, He was just like, drop out of school and move here yeah. and let's yeah. start a band. Let's go. And I said, done. I mean, and I, I, I was, I'd never been to Boston and I, it didn't matter. I, I, I would have right. gone anywhere. And in fact, about two weeks later, he called back and said, hey, you know what? I, I think I'm going to go back home to Atlanta. It's not, it's, you know, it's warmer and it's cheaper mm-hmm. and it'll be easier. And I, and I said, cool. And it didn't matter. If he had said anywhere else, I would have said, cool. You know, my, to me, the whole thing was just get me out of here. Right. The thing, I mean, the thing that blows my mind though, is that, you were making these decisions and I mean, you, you weren't even really a drummer yet. No. Like, I mean, you were, you know, you played the drums a little bit, but it's not like you had a history of playing with a bunch of different bands or, or even, you know, had, had all of this experience or um, my guess is probably weren't even playing that well at the time. Right. No, I, I wasn't. I mean, when I would play, I, I mean, here's the thing. I had confidence and, you know, you can't overstate how important that can be. Right. Like I would go see bands in the club, either in Bowling Green or down in Nashville. And a, a drummer would sit down and I'm just like laser focused always on the drummers. And I could see right away like, oh, this guy's been playing. He's had lessons or he has rudiments or he's done this before and he knows what he's doing, but I could feel it's almost like the same vibe of sports. Like when you're playing basketball and you're guarding somebody, you can tell within the first minute of that game, if they're feeling it or if they're a little nervous about you, you know, you're sizing each other up, body language, all those things. And I think I would look at drummers and right away recognize like, well, he can outplay me, but I'll kill him right now at this gig. You know what I mean? He's nervous. Right. And my thing was always, I always, you know, part of it was covering, and this is this was real apparent when I did get to Atlanta and I bought my first kit and I immediately started playing gigs. I couldn't, uh, by no way measurable would anyone say I was a better drummer than any of the drummers that my band was opening for, but I was, I had something a lot of those guys didn't have, which is I had nothing to lose. I, I always felt like I was playing catch up. You know, I bought my first mm-hmm. drum kit when I was 21 years old and I'm like, man, I am so late to this game. I, it's wild. It's, I mean, I started when I was, I started when I was 15 and I thought, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm really behind. Right. Really right. behind. Well, I, I didn't have time to make a bunch of dumb mistakes. I mean, it, it, it mm-hmm. you know, my greatest weakness was my greatest strength. And I was at the time now I look back and go, well, at least I was smart enough to recognize that the biggest thing with drummers and local bands is your job is just not to suck. You know, it's not right. to be great. Your job is not to be great. Your job is to make everybody else in front of you play with confidence yeah you know and like, i think that there's something to the fact that you were you were intensely listening to all of these records you were air drumming to them it kind of reminds me of that basketball uh um experiment that they did with the free throws and they had some people shoot them some people not do anything and some people mm-hmm. just thinking about shooting them and just the people who thought about shooting them their free throws improved um, yeah, I, you know, I, I started playing golf in the 90s, and mm-hmm. the biggest thing that helped my golf game was starting to play video game golf hmm. because it removed all the ego. You know, yeah. you're playing a video game. You're not trying to swing hard. You're trying to hit a straight shot, and you're trying to hit the smart shot. And I, I recognized real fast, like, oh, wait, th- I would have never seen how to play golf if I hadn't played the video game version. And then when I get out on the course, I don't think, let me see if I can crush this drive. It's like, no, hit the ball straight, 
a little less far and then just go up and hit a bogey and feel better about yourself. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. Um, I did look at drumming then as, you know, and and I also, I would look at local bands and they were good bands, but you know, I was also smart enough to recognize, okay, well, there's no Eddie Van Halen's up here. There's no, you know, no, no, there's no Paul McCartney's. There's just mm-hmm. a bunch of guys all trying hard. And some of these bands are better than others, but the difference in, Every band I saw, it just came down to, is the drummer solid or not? And if the drummer was solid, the rest of the guys could almost suck. And you'd still think like, hey, pretty good band, you know? And I was aware that that's how people responded to bands. I think, you know, if you saw a band with a great singer and a great guitar player and the drummer had no idea where the one was, people aren't nearly as engaged as they are in a band where the singer's a good performer but can't hit a note. And the guitar player's flashy but can't play rhythm. But if the drums are solid, it keep it. It's a subconscious thing right. that I think I was always aware of. I was like, so anyway, I was looking at it like, you don't have to be flashy. You don't have to be Bonzo. You don't have to be Neil Peart. Just just lay it like you said. Just be Phil Rudd, man, and everything's yeah. going to come together around it. Yeah. And so you know, I had moments where I would be like, God, I really wish I could do those crazy fills, and I would love to be more this or that. And it never served the purpose for what the band was trying to do ever. So, I mean, I didn't have, you know, I would have those thoughts. I would have those moments, but it's not like, and it never got, I never got carried away with those concerns. You know, I was, because right away I was in a band and we were playing and writing our own music and we were playing in clubs and that was the goal. I was like, well, I've already won this damn thing. Now it's a question of how long can we keep going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing where you sort of didn't have time to, to sort of be distracted by all of those other things by trying to play inverted paradiddles with your feet or something like well, that. Well, yeah, like yeah, you know, everybody that spent their teens in their basement playing a drum kit alone had to unlearn all that shit the first time they plugged into a guy who said, "Okay, we're going to play this three chord rock and roll song." Yeah, you know, and so I I didn't have to do that. It really mm-hmm. was sort of a, you know, I had to learn from I I I had to learn from other people's mistakes because I didn't have time to make them myself. You know, right. I, and right. and I did have, you know, it's funny because I'm still friends with uh, people I met right when I first got to Atlanta, local musicians back in the late '80s, and I would pick their brains. I mean, I would talk to. I was 21, and I have a, a great friend named Andrew Kyler who's probably four years older than me. I met him right there. He's a great guitarist. He's been playing in Atlanta for years, and I remember specifically going up to him one day and saying, hey, can I can I talk to you for a minute? I just didn't know who else to ask. And he was like, what's going on? And, you know, he didn't know if I was going to ask him for, you know, where's <laughs> a good thrift store or, you know, what. Right. And I said, man, like, am I, when you see, you saw my band, I mean, do I know what I'm doing in your mind? Because he was like a great, I just thought he was a great musician. I said, what mm-hmm. am I supposed to be doing? And he just laughed and he said, dude, you're already there. Don't just, if you don't know what you're doing, don't figure it out. Cause you know, you're just, you're not in anybody's way. And he, and he, he, I I knew what he was saying, but hearing him say it made it really, really crystallized for me. Mm -hmm. And to him, it's an offhanded conversation. I'm sure he has no recollection of, but it meant the world to me because, you know, I just, I I didn't want to be kidding myself. And I thought maybe I'm so insecure that I'm just covering with such arrogance to say, I already know what I'm doing. And there was some of that, but but underneath it, I wasn't like I said. I, I didn't think I was a great drummer, but I thought I was. But I knew what I was doing, and that put me ahead of most guys. I thought. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's the concept of 
not you know just not being in everyone's way looking around okay are people dancing is ever is anyone giving me the side eye and telling me to telling me to calm down uh for you were you thinking more from a from a musical context were you thinking okay i'm trying to play musically or was it just hey i just want to sort of stay out of everyone's way and let and just let everything kind of breathe um I'm sorry. Um, I, you know what? Repeat that again. I just had a distraction that I could not resist. I'm sorry. No problem. I was I'm curious if you were thinking about it musically. Were you saying, okay, you know, I'm trying to play as musical as possible and, and really thinking about it from, from, you know, as a musicality thing? Or was it just, I'm just going to lay back and just kind of, and just add a little bit of, uh, of sort of support here for everyone else and just let every, you know, let it do its thing. Well, it was, it was the latter primarily, but then, but then beyond that, like once I would establish, okay, I feel good. I can hear everything. I'm going to be solid tonight. Then it was in rehearsal or a gig. Then it was definitely, okay, make sure that the bass player and I are locked in. Mm -hmm. And then, and then always hearing moments in a song that, it like a pre-chorus. It felt natural to pull back a little and then push into the chorus with a big, you know, like get behind the beat a little to set up the release of a big exuberant chorus. Little things like that. I always did naturally without a lot of linear thought. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, I think there was just and, and and a lot of that's just being such a, a a Beatles and and especially Ringo fanatic. You know that. I was five when I first started air drumming to Ticket to Ride. I mean, that's really right. where it started. The first time I heard the song Ticket to Ride, I just went, oh my God, what is that? Who, what is that guy doing? And why do I feel like I have to do that right now? Hmm. Um, but, you know, it was such a part of my drumming DNA. It's just Beatles records for years and years and years. And I think to this day, you know, Ringo is, a, he's, he's the alpha and omega of what you're supposed to do as a drummer in a band. Yeah. Um, What's what's your uh, what do you have to say to everyone who thinks that he's a horrible drummer? Or don't they don't give him the credit I, that he deserves? I, nothing. I have nothing <laughs> on earth to say to anybody that would suggest that it's not worth my time to point out to somebody that you're staring directly into the sun and wondering why your eyes hurt. You idiot. That's <laughs> that's what I think. Anybody that questions Ringo Starr's drumming has no. I have no need for them in my life. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there's, I talk about it on the podcast a lot, but just the uh, sort of the new style of drumming and sort of the new approach to drumming where it's notes and, you know, notes on top of notes on top of notes and no dynamics and, and yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of like, to me, it's like, it's, I, I can be fascinated by that and I can see drummers do it and I can appreciate it in the exact same way I can watch somebody make an ice sculpture with a chainsaw. You know, it's right. like, wow, that is truly amazing. doesn't move me. And it's nothing that I feel compelled to try to figure out on my own, but I can still be impressed with it. Like I've said for years, um, and I said after he died last year, because I, I, I do a classic rock radio show now. I don't do sports anymore. And on mm -hmm. my show, when Neil Peart died, you know, the first thing I said was, I'm not a Neil Peart guy. Um, <laughs> that said, I felt a incalculable, unquantifiable loss. I felt a hole in my side for just the loss of that incredibly inventive, audacious drummer. I mean, I, I respected him and I admired him greatly, but I was not a Rush fan. And that kind of drumming never was the thing that made me, I never heard that and thought, I got to go do that. You know, I thought, right. oh my God, that's incredible. I saw Rush once. 
I watched the drum solo and I thought, I've just watched God play the drum kit. That is unlike right. anything I've ever seen. But it doesn't have anything to do with my playing or my life. In fact, I've said for years, he and I played different instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I played a bunch of gigs. take. You know, I played a bunch of gigs with Bobby Keys a, a few years back. And, mm -hmm. you know, his saxophone and Neil Peart's drum kit, those are two different instruments that I play. And I love them both, but it's not me. Right, right. And think about how many think about how many people he got into drumming, whether they went and tried to play every note that he played, but he was just sort of this oh. larger than life figure that that was really, you know, he like I think of Ringo and I think of Neil are two guys that real I mean Ringo, especially like, you know, the whole Sullivan thing, you hear so many people cite that as the reason why they got into playing drums. Right. But then oh, the first time I heard Neil Peart and I I like was blown away and started playing drums. Right. Well, well, Neil Peart got more people in and more people out of drumming than any other drummer <laughs> on earth. I think you know Ringo. Ringo opened the door, and then you wanted to hang out and stay for a while. Do you, if I had tried to be Neil Peart when I sat down at that first drum kit, it would have lasted all of ninety seconds, and I would have yeah. said, "Okay, time for a new thing to focus on." Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, to to his credit, you know, yeah. so. Um, but you know, I, it's, it's just a, it's, you know, drumming to me is, is uh, everybody's feel, you know, Steve Gadd's amazing and you can, you can break down his polyrhythmic approach, but he feels good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, he's just got the, the fattest groove and everything he plays feels natural, even when it's completely unnatural. I mean, that's what Ringo and Bonham to me are the, are just, it's all about the swing, you know, it's yeah. the, it's the push and pull that a metronome has no time for. That's those are the drummers that always just inspire me. That's just what I feel. Mm -hmm. You know, every drummer's got their own clock. Um and I've always said, and it's not out of arrogance at all. It's just the way I look at it. I, I can watch a drummer play for 14 seconds and tell you if they've got something or not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they cover the lack of feel with years of diligent work on chops and and uh, rudiments and all kinds of flash. But you can, you know, a lot of times those guys at the end of the day, they're just like a, they're just like a chainsaw and all that's left at the end of it is a bunch of sawdust without a shape, you know? Right, right. Um, to your point about some of the guys, it's all tones and blah, blah, blah. Like I said, it's, 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 an, it's just as intriguing to me as anything else that I don't do and don't want to do, but I'm amazed that somebody can. Right. I've been thinking about this more and more lately, and I actually read an article. I'm a big baseball fan, and I read an article yesterday about how there, there there's all of these new, um, because of all the new analytics and things like that, where they're teaching a lot of people, you know, they're teaching everyone how to hit the ball, but they're not teaching them how to be good hitters, meaning <laughs> right. you know, situationally and things like that. And I started to think about that more, that and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we have the ability to just go on YouTube and see how these people played particular things. Mm -hmm. And then we say, okay, I get it. Right hand, left hand, right, right, left. And you can figure it out from a technical standpoint and then go and play behind the kit. And I, I feel like there's such a focus on the how and less on the feeling and mm -hmm. you know the the reason why they're playing these particular things or the right. or the emotion behind it yeah i you know i think it's funny like i i've never even thought about this till you just said it but i spent years going down to the basement and listening to records and playing along and i mean i would have my eyes shut so tight the whole time mm -hmm. um 
it was like the exact opposite of watching somebody on YouTube and figuring something out, you know? Right. And I mean, that said, I remember when Led Zeppelin put the DVD out in 2003, that Royal Albert Hall footage, there was stuff I was like, oh, finally, I'm going to watch Bonzo. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's what he's doing. You know, like I was making that way harder or yeah. I, I misinterpreted completely what that actually is. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly helpful. But, yeah, as a kid for me, I mean, the idea of just it it was just all feel, 100% feel. I mean, that's all there is to it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just I would sit there and like I said, I'd be... I'd be a million miles away in my head, eyes firmly shut, and I'm on stage at Madison Square Garden, and I'm just grooving. You know what I mean? It was that was my release and my escape from everything in life. Mm-hmm. I will die on the hill that that listening and playing along with records is how you develop your feel. I mean, everyone, so you, Steve Jordan, Steve, I mean, all these guys, everyone have said the same thing. They're like, I listened to records and played along with them for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Yeah, when I first got to Atlanta, moved into a house with my my two bandmates in the band I moved down there to start. It was called Marry My Hope. And so my buddy Clint played guitar. Sven Pippian, who later joined the Black Crows forever uh, as a bassist, he was the bassist in my first band. And our singer came down later. He was a kid that I went to college with at Western Kentucky named James Hall. But so for those first couple months before our singer showed up and we were waiting on him, uh, I bought a kit, set it up in the house, and we would jam and play together. But then when everybody else was out of the house, when I would find myself alone, there was a stereo right there in the room with headphones, and I had to put on a cassette tape because albums would skip. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I would, I would, whatever cassettes everybody had, I would put them on. And like, I can remember just playing along to synchronicity, you know, and some <laughs> of that stuff. Like, like, I couldn't begin to make it make sense, but just the idea of... I think that's when you learn, um, okay, all that excitement in the chorus, it's not the guy on the drums doing it. He's just keeping the tempo the same. All the other instruments, these things that make perfect sense on paper, until you're experiencing them, you don't realize how much you have a tendency to want to rush through the chorus or you want to, you're, you know, developing dynamic. That's That stuff all comes from playing along to records, or it certainly did with me. And and I had never been a huge ACDC fan. I mean, I knew those records that you can't get away from ACDC if you're a, a kid in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until 1987 that I ever like thought, oh, I'm going to play along to that record. And that was mind-boggling. I mean, Phil Rudd is, uh, it's it's almost trite to say, but he, he couldn't be a more underrated drummer in rock history than Phil Rudd. Yeah. Because, yeah, he might be playing really simple beats, but man, the interplay... The, the the space in the groove that he and Cliff and Malcolm have, especially live, it's just incredible. And yeah. every band on earth does an ACDC song at least once in their life. And if they know what they're doing, they recognize real e- early on, we can't possibly make this feel like ACDC. We yeah. can make it sound like ACDC, yeah. but it's never going to feel quite right because that three-man rhythm section is just a jackhammer like nobody else. And you can't fake it. That's just how they play together. And it's impossible to replicate. Mm-hmm. I've I've from I've said it since you know since the beginning of time. I'm not an ACDC fan, but I respect the hell out of them. And same thing with you with Rush. And you know, it's like hearing hearing how that one, how they play together, but just Phil Rudd and and his timing and and his feel. And uh, I mean the guys, he's the perfect drummer mm-hmm. for that band hands down no questions asked you know and uh so i definitely respect everything that that he's done over the years for sure it's amazing yeah uh, no he's he's 
it, it's there are so many moments in those early ACDC records um, before Mutt Lang got involved. And I mean, Back in Black's a great record for those about to, you know, you can say what you want. But the early, the Power Age, High Voltage, Highway to Hell, there's just a, a, a something about that guy. Uh, it's, again, it's, well, it's kind of like Ringo. Like, you can tell me Ringo's left-handed playing a right-handed drum kit. There's a little lag when he starts fills with his left hand, and that's where that groove comes from. You can break it down all day long, but at the end of the day, well, you go play that, and I yeah, go, go play it. it. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, it yeah, it sounds like it, but it doesn't feel like it. And that's, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Drummers are like, you know, what? what's the, you know, it's like you, your literal fingerprints are on your style. You just play the way you play. You, Unless it's been, you know, drilled out of you in band practice, uh, drummers, everybody's got their own sort of signature footprint and mm-hmm. or thumbprint. And and I, that's my favorite thing. Like the list of drummers that I continually feel the most from, they don't sound anything like, they don't sound like anybody. They all play their own way, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a good distinction to make too, fa- sounding like someone and feeling like someone. I don't want to sound like Steve Jordan. I want to feel like Steve Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a well. That's if a- you ever, uh, if you ever feel like Steve Jordan, uh, you're going to get a gig that day. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Put one video on on yeah. uh, YouTube, and the phone will ring. Yeah. If you if you if you <laughs> end up feeling like Steve Jordan, just just. Just put it up and sit back and get ready to get paid. <laughs> yeah, the phone will start ringing immediately. <laughs> uh, so I, w- I want to talk about when you met the Robinson brothers. When that when that meeting happened, were you sort of thinking these are my guys? Like this is these are going to be the guys that that we build this band with that you'd been seeking out for such a long time? No, not at all. The not, not even close because I. I got to Atlanta um, with the guys that I thought were going to be my band, Clint and Sven. That was my mm-hmm. guys. And their roommate, like they had just rented a house for the four of us to live in. The fourth roommate was Chris Robinson. So I met him the day I moved there. And he and his brother were already playing gigs as Mr. Crow's Garden. They'd been mm-hmm. playing shows, you know, pretty regularly, I guess, for a year, you know, since sometime in 86. And this is early 87. And so that, you know, uh, it, it, no, I just met Chris. He was just the guy in that other band who lives in our house at first, and we hit it off right away. We were we were fast friends, uh, for sure. But I had my band. I mean, that's what I went down there for, and he had his. So it just seemed like the furthest. It, it just never even entered my mind in the first few months I was in town that I would end up playing with him. Um, two things happened over the next four or five months. One, his band, Mister Crow's Garden. Uh, a guy at AM Records was offering them money to go do some demos. Just to, an AR dude had heard a demo and, you know, looked at Chris and said, Well, there's something. That guy's got something for sure. You know, he can mm-hmm. sing and he's got a presence. And, you know, the way AR guys do, you just start to develop an artist and see if it goes anywhere. Right. Um, they were getting ready to do their second ever demo. And their drummer, a guy named Jeff Sullivan, left Mr. Crow's Garden and joined a band called Driving and Crying, who had just signed with Island Records. Mm. So Mr. Crow's Garden is suddenly without a drummer, and they got to go do a session. And Chris said, and we were just buddies and lived in the house together. And he goes, hey, man, come and play this session with us. And I laughed, and I said, I've been playing drums for three months. I'm not doing a session for A&M Records. And he was like, don't worry about it. You're as good as anybody else. It's a straight song. Come on. So I went and did that. 
uh, still thinking, oh, well, this will be fun. I've never been in a studio. And if I ruin it, it's not my band. You know, right, I'll, I'll right. go mess up Mr. Crow's Gardens demo. <laughs> um, you know, what could what what could be the harm? And on that trip, it, it was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So we actually drove up there for a few days and, you know, got along great. And Chris and I were already buddies. The bass player, Ted, and I were, were cool. Rich and I got along reasonably well at the time. Um, you know, it still was just a thing in my head like, well, this is cool for them, but my band is – is is really great, and and when we got back from that trip, Chris said, "Man, you should just join our band. You, you fit in perfectly." And I laughed and I said, "Nah, that's, that's there's just no way." But it really got me thinking, and I like like to the point where I you know was literally sitting up at night, couldn't go to sleep because I was like, "Man, he might be right." The truth about my band, Mary, my hope was they were way more ambitious musically. By which I mean they were writing songs that were six and seven minutes long, that were kind of like Doors or Zeppelin songs, like big swirling minor chord progressions and incredibly dramatic. You know, they mm-hmm. were they were a band that was perfectly suited for alt rock of the early nineties, but it was nineteen eighty seven. They were a little ahead of the curve. Hmm. You know, they were for a lack of a better thing, I mean, if somewhere between the doors and Jane's addiction and Led Zeppelin, you know, it was very heavy. And uh I was feeling very much out of my depths. I was confident. Oh, I was playing straight, but I could tell like, man, this band needs like a drummer. Like they need a John Bonham guy. Like they need somebody that can bring all that. And, and there was also just a vibe in that band. It was very druggy and I just wasn't into drugs. I was a little freaked out by how much drugs they were doing. And I was like, Oh wow. I don't know if this is going anywhere. And I'm not talking out of school. I'm great friends with those. We've all maintained our relationships over the years. And like I said, Sven ended up in the crows forever, but in 1987, uh, that's more a statement on how naive I was about drugs and how, little I understood about just that culture mm-hmm. to where, you know, I was, as it turned out, I think they did go a little too far down that road. They would tell you that, but, but I was, I was probably more worried about it and intimidated by it than I need have been. But anyway, all that sort of added up to me feeling like, man, I think Mr. Crow's Garden might be a better fit for me. I mean, the records, the, the, the bands that Mr. Crow's Garden were taking direct cues from, were the same bands I loved. And the guys in Mary My Hope were going back a little farther to stuff from the 60s and early 70s as their main inspiration, um, musically anyway, because they were looking at the 80s going, well, this 80s thing is over. What's next? And, you know, there's pros and cons to all approaches, but simply put, the Black Crows, or excuse me, Mr. Crow's Garden, I could play those songs. Like, I could watch that band and go, I can do that. I can Mm -hmm. totally do that. Their drummer, the guy that left for Driving a Crime, was was definitely way more advanced than me at that time. He was playing great, really fast fills. He just had, he had a lot of chops, but that wasn't, that didn't intimidate me because I was like, well, yeah, but the songs are straight. And what the songs need is just a really solid uh, backbeat. And I can do that. So when you left that band, how, how did that go over with your friends? Not well at all. Um, it was, <laughs> it was after, so. it was after only our third, uh, it was our third, show um the first gig was opening for mr crow's garden the second gig was opening for a band called snatches of pink at uh in, in they were from north carolina and then and then our third show was at a club in atlanta called margaritaville and i don't think we were the opening band i think there was just three bands that all played for 45 minutes right you know like there wasn't like anybody on the bill that was any bigger than anybody else 
And it was after that show, we loaded up and walked out in the parking lot. And I said, hey, guys, I got to tell you something. I'm going to switch. I'm going to join Mr. Goes Garden. And they were, you know, furious. I mean, Clint, my friend from high school, you know, it was really, really, I, 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 f- I felt shitty. I felt terrible about it. But at the same time, I felt like, well, I'm making the right decision for me and ultimately for both bands. Like, right. I, I'm not supposed to be in Marry My Hope. And he was angry. You know, Sven and James were disappointed. They didn't really flash any anger. But Clint and I go way back, so he had no problem telling me I was a fucking asshole. Right. Um, but, you know, they replaced me literally within days. And the first time I went to see them with their new drummer, they played rock and roll <laughs> from Led Zeppelin <laughs> 4. And the guy nailed the intro and the outro. And I was like, oh, my God. You're like, that's why I quit this band. Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was all good. You know, once they got a drummer, like a quote unquote real drummer who'd already played a lot of gigs, they were off and running. They got a record deal way before Mr. Crow's Garden did. Um, oh, really? They put an album out in 1989. They went to England in 1988. Uh, they signed with a label called, I think, Silvertone Records. And like they went and made an album in England. You know, it was like big time. Oh, nice. And I was like, damn. But, and people would say, like, you made the wrong choice. But I never felt that way because I was like, I couldn't be a part of that. That, that just right. wasn't where I was going. So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch, or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is all built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 dash drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out the sonar drum configurator it's crazy to me that when i hear stories of you know when you're talking about this where obviously the band that you were in before got a record deal then you're married by hope or i'm sorry uh, micro's garden get a get a record deal then you're in the black crows and and even, you know, talking to other guys, like I was talking to, um, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, the drummer from Pearl Jam. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I can't think of his name, but, you know, like multiple bands, record deals. And mm-hmm. it seemed, I, I get maybe it's just, maybe I was in the wrong circles or something like that. But the bands that I grew up with, like a couple of us like got a record deal here or there, but it wasn't like, Oh, I was in this one band and they got a record deal and then they got one and then they got one. Do you think, do you think that there was more, um, I don't want to say it was easier to get a record deal, but do you think that there was more a and R guys going out there and really trying to find bands and develop them instead of, I mean, now it's just like, what are your numbers on YouTube? We're not like, we don't really want to develop anyone. We just want to sign someone who's already successful. Um, but do you think, you know, in, in sort of the golden era of the of the the record industry, there was more willingness to go out and just give bands record deals to try to develop them because they saw something there? Without question. I mean, the most important thing, I think, for an A&R guy back in the day wasn't 
to find a finished product at all. It was the exact opposite. You wanted to find somebody you could shape and mold and and bring along and develop. And I don't use shape and mold as bad words. I think those right. are essential words. I mean, the Beatles had George Martin for, you know, no one's Prince except for Prince. Everybody mm-hmm. needs somebody that knows more than they do about what they're trying to do, at least early on. You know what I mean? It's like I, George DeCoulias was perfect for us because when he saw the band for the first time, it, one of the first words, one of the first things we heard him say was, well, you guys aren't very good, but those cover tunes were kind of cool. <laughs> and I mean, we just took to him like a fish to water because we had met people at record labels before and they immediately come in with, you guys are incredible. You're going to be great one day. Oh my God, I love this. I love that. And he immediately was like, well, you guys kind of suck. <laughs> but, you know, because we didn't, we weren't under any illusion that we were a great band. And in fact, right. I used to say, and I said for years, we're the worst band in Atlanta and the best band in the world. That's what I thought we were in 1988. Like, yeah, I know we don't have our shit together yet, but we're finding it. And there was an undeniable chemistry. I mean, when I look back at uh, Chris and Rich and myself in 87 and 88, there was just a, we just had a vibe that, you know, and we went through a few different bass players and it worked with whoever was playing bass. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a chemistry there. And I'm not comparing us at all to the Beatles in 1962, but George Martin said, I didn't sign the Beatles because they were great. I signed them because they were great people. When they walked into a room, the electricity in the air changed. Mm-hmm. And and I think that we had a vibe, just our personalities, three very, very strong personalities who blended well. We weren't stepping on each other's toes. Um, and, and I think that there was just something there. And we all believed, like, we weren't going to do anything else. That was, that's really key, too. Like, the three of us had no thought of what if this doesn't work out? Never, ever. It was like, no, this is going to happen. We don't know how, and we might not be the guys setting the plan in motion, but we're just going to keep doing what we're going to do. And it's going to mm-hmm. find, and you know, we'll find, we'll figure it out. Right. And when we met George right away, he said, I mean, he immediately started deconstructing how I was playing and Rich was playing. And it was very simply said, you, you, this is what you do really well. And this is what you're terrible at. And you don't seem to know the difference. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> oh, thanks, man. And it was like, I, I grew up playing soccer and basketball, two sports where you get coached to death. Right. So I'm very coachable. And I and I had a few, I had some bad coaches along the way, but I had a few great ones. And George was immediately, you know, if you want to continue that metaphor, he was obviously an experienced coach who said, you're trying to do things you're not here to do. Let me show you what your strengths are. And if you just focus on those, it really was like he, to, to me as a drummer and to Rich as a guitarist, he just poured gas on a little simmering fire in both right. of us. And he pointed us in a direction uh, that, that almost from the jump, almost from the first meeting that led us to, you know, within 14 or 15 months of meeting him, we're recording Shake Your Moneymaker. Right. And then, I mean, and then did it feel like, did it well, feel hang like- Hang on, some, let me just say before, go ahead. to the point I originally made, that's what an A&R guy is looking for. Um, I, I've had friends for years who were in great bands. You'd go see them in a club and go, man, how come these guys aren't on a record label yet? And I always right. thought, well, the reason is, is because they're already finished. And an A&R mm-hmm. guy doesn't have anything to do for them. It's like, now if they right. have a great song, if there's a hit song that, that gets someone's ears open- but I mean, you'd see bands and go, why not? Uh, why us and not them? And I think it took me a while to realize the reason was we were just so raw 
but there was we just needed a guy who saw our potential that we couldn't see and that was that was just the luckiest stroke uh imaginable to meet george when we did mm-hmm. did it feel like everything kind of took off like a rocket ship after that for you no it did not feel that way at all um we met George in the spring of 88. We were making Shake Your Money Maker in the summer of 89. And along the way, we had actually lost the majority of our local fan base, the people that would come and see Mr. Crow's Garden in 87 and 88, because Rich in 87 was still a high school senior. And mm-hmm. we had a lot of high school kids that liked the band. And they all went to college. And all of a sudden, like, we're no one's coming to see us. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, like him getting out of high school meant the whole band suddenly, in a weird way, it was like, okay, we're all, we're, we're now competing with adults. Like, mm-hmm. when you got a kid in a high, and in fact, actually, Jeff, the original drummer, or the drummer that I replaced, they were both high school seniors when I got to Atlanta. And so regardless of the fact that Chris was 20, they're a high school band. When two guys are in high school, you're still a high school band and you're competing against high school bands. And for a high school band, they were really good. Well, a year and a half later, you know, we're out playing in clubs with bands of guys who are in their thirties and we're not that good. You know what I mean? And we don't have the whole, well, he's a high school kid excuse to fall back on. Yeah. Um, Not that that was a conscious thought that anybody had ever, but that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's just like a, you know, you, you're you just going to have a different, uh, you know, it's just a different way people view you based on things that are just natural, like you're in high school or you're not. Mm-hmm. So for, for George, you know, at that time, we developed incredibly from the spring of 88 to the summer of 89 was like an incredible period of growth and development. But nobody was aware of it because we weren't playing to very many people. We were playing a lot of gigs mostly out of town because Atlanta gigs had just dried up. Nobody cared. We were sort of passe. There was always a new band that was hip for a minute in the local scene. And we felt like, well, nobody cares about us anymore. We'll just, we were having more fun playing outside of town anyway. Right. And so we recorded that album in 89. We played a show in December of 89, which was two months. It was seven weeks before that album was released. Seven weeks before Shake Your Money Maker was in record stores all over America. We played a free show in Atlanta that included your first draft beer was free and 12 people showed up. Wow. So nothing felt like it was blowing up. Trust me, nothing at all. Um, But two months later, the record comes out and rock radio started playing Jealous again right away. And it was like, that was like going from zero to 60 in one second. Like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. we're on the radio in El Paso? Say what? You know, I I just wanted to be on the radio at a college station in Atlanta and hear myself. Right. And next thing I know, I'm listening to like the giant rock station in Atlanta. And I'm like, they're playing the record five times a day? What are you talking about? Jeez. So that, that went crazy. Now, what that meant for us was we're just opening for another band in clubs for months and months. Mm-hmm. But within six months, we were opening for Aerosmith and Arenas. You know, it was like, wow, this is okay. This is moving pretty quickly. You know, holy shit. Um, and then That's a big a, jump. It's a real big jump that we were not prepared for, but got prepared for really quickly. We were definitely a band. And in my life in general, I I love the saying that you never know how tall you are until you're in over your head. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to the idea that you wait till you're ready for anything in life is abhorrent to me. Cause it's like, no, nah, you got to get ready in real time. Um, 
I've just seen too many people look at things and go, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And I, I'd much rather say, well, let's find out if I'm ready for it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like I might not be. I mean, I have a radio career based on the fact that I just talked myself into it. And I started doing a local sports talk show in 2008. And when I had sat in on other people's shows for years and thought I could do this. I know I could do this. I could have a lot of fun doing this. But the minute it was, I was the host and that red light went on, I was terrified. And my first thought was, what the hell did you just get yourself into? <laughs> you are kidding yourself. But, you know, I, I got through it. And then the next day was a little better. And the next day was a little better. And next thing you know, I'm doing it. Yeah. Um. So when Aerosmith asked us to open, you know, it's a fairly well-known story. They tried to fire us after the first night. Oh, really? Yeah, they called our manager. Like, we've made a huge mistake. Your band is nowhere near ready for this. They were terrible on stage. And they and they really? were and they were right. We were so in over our heads. We'd never played a room that held a thousand people, much less ten thousand people. We had no idea how to perform to an arena crowd. And our manager <laughs> did said, you, "Did you run into the same problem that we had? We started playing. We we were, we were playing arenas, and like you don't have the gear for it. So your ampli you have this tiny little amplifier that's no. We we had some we had some half stacks. We were we <laughs> okay. were ready to go in that regard. It, <laughs> didn't, it it didn't look like we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> right. It was just apparent that we didn't. <laughs> I'd always and, look, I always look at pictures. It looks like we have all these like it looks like we have like a little kids uh, <laughs> like music yeah. stuff set up on stage. Yeah, no, no, we had that part figured <laughs> <Okay>. out. Uh, <laughs> We, you know, looking back, it would have been better if we had small amps and a sense of reality of what we were there to do. <laughs> but, you know, our manager said, no, I'm coming out. I'm going to work with them. They'll be fine. He said, give me a week. And he came out. The, he was at the second show. He videotaped it. And then after that show, we watched it. And he literally rewound it and made us watch the whole thing. And it was terrible. We're just like so self-conscious. And he just said, guys, this is what you got to do. And 90% and of his notes were for Chris. Like, hey. The rest of you guys can just lay back and play well. Chris, you've got to become a performer and you got to become a performer right now because you have 30 minutes or 40 minutes to make an impression on 10,000 people. And I don't want all 10,000 of them to love you. That's not going to happen. But we need like 500 of them to like you. That's all we need. Right. So find somebody that's already wearing a black crow shirt. Find someone that's dancing and perform to them. You know, just basic tips about what to do in that situation. And Chris took to it right away. And that tour was huge. You know, six weeks later, we were a very, I mean, well, two weeks into it, we were a really proper opening act in arenas. We could totally pull it off. Um, so, and there was a lot of examples of that throughout the first album process, where with every step of the way, we would, you know, step on the rake at first and smash ourselves in the face, but real quickly, the whole band was coachable and malleable and flexible. And a lot of our arrogance started to give way to actual confidence. And when you start to feel that shift, man, it's it's pretty great. And so a year after Shake Your Moneymaker was released, it went platinum. And then it went double platinum four weeks after that. And then it went triple platinum four weeks after that. So by the spring of 91, yeah, it was definitely moving fast. And things were like, holy shit, what is happening? Yeah. Um. But thankfully, we'd been out on the road for a year and had figured out at least enough of what the landscape was so we didn't we didn't blow it. Like if we had had an experience like Nirvana had, I guarantee you we wouldn't have made it to our third record. There's just no way. that 
how you know to go from a punk band to the biggest band in the world in three months that's kind of incomprehensible to me to this day i don't know i don't know how insane it must have been inside that world but uh i i have a i imagine it just felt like they were just walking on ice the whole time yeah what how how was the was the draw for you guys in terms of like you know like you you go from zero to a hundred are you able to draw people to the shows after that? Or are you still going out and yeah, supporting, we were, supporting other we did, acts? Well, so for 1990, it was it was two tours and clubs, opening act. Then we did the Aerosmith tour. We did three weeks or four weeks with Hart. And then we mm-hmm. went out with Robert Plant. You know, we had this great run of three straight arena tours. November and December of that year, we went out and did our first headlining club tour. And these are small rooms, 300 to 500 tops. Mm-hmm. But those all sold out. Like we sold out the whole thing. The record had gone gold. And we were on MTV all the time. Oh, I um, remember. <laughs> and so that club tour was great. And and our manager always knew, like, uh, you know, to underplay the rooms. Like we could have played bigger rooms, but he's like, no, man, first time headlining, you want a line of people around the block and you want a, a lot of people not getting in, you know, like y- if people don't make it, they're damn sure going to come back next time. Yeah. It's just basic, you know, that's one Oh one, uh, programming for entertainment. And so then after that tour, we started 91 opening was for ZZ top. And that was a huge, that was the biggest tour of the year for arenas at that point. They were doing multiple nights in major markets, like three nights at the Omni in Atlanta. They did two Madison square gardens. I mean, it was big. Wow. And so it's a great band and, too. And that's right when the album exploded. You know, all these things converged after a year of planting all the seeds. Everything blew up in the spring of 91. And so when that ended, uh April and May, or maybe more like May, June of 91, we went out and headlined theaters. Like we went on to full on three to five thousand seaters, and that whole tour sold out. And then we were just there. We were just a theater band from then on. Right. It's amazing. I, it's the power of the power of obviously good songs and and a good record label, but the power of radio. And it's, rock radio back then was uh, it's it's hard to even imagine now. That was before you know ninety six when the FCC just said, "Oh, anybody can own as many stations as they want." You know, right? That was back when you'd be on a station in Tampa. And they'd say, hey, we have three more stations, you know, we're going to add you to all four. And you'd be like, holy shit, we just got four ads? As opposed to now where iHeart or whoever just says, oh, we're going to put you on 190 stations tomorrow. You know what right. I mean? Like the, right. yeah, the, it was that a no very, one's really listening to. <laughs> it was a, yeah, exactly. It was an incredibly different world back then. So radio, radio and MTV both, uh, man, they, they just, they just gave us, we had we were the most played band on rock radio for the first half of the 90s um which is which is incredible but you know there's also the split which is by the time nirvana and pearl jam hit and smashing pumpkins the the format had been shifted and a lot of stations were suddenly alt rock that was the new thing mm-hmm. so we didn't the alt rock never embraced the black crows but for the rock stations that were the mainstays for 90 and 91 and 92 by the time 93 and 94 came around, a lot of those were switching the stick to get Nirvana and, you know, all, 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 all the what were considered alt-rock bands on their airwaves. But I mentioned that we were the most played band just to say you can't overstate the impact radio had on our career, to be sure. Yeah. 
Which is interesting because I would put you guys in the in the same bucket, right or wrong. I would, you know, I would put you guys in the same bucket as as Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Nirvana. Not that I think it's the same style, but I would just sort of. Well, no, to me, we it was thought, just like '90s rock. Well, that's what we thought. I mean, we weren't, we weren't, you know, we also bristled at the term Southern rock. We were like, we're not Southern rock. We're not. We're just our band. We're our band, and we have a lot of influences. Right. And I mean, I get that we are from the South, but I always said, "Well, what does that make Aerosmith Northern Rock?" I mean, come on, we're just, <laughs> right. just a rock band. It's a rock and roll right. band, you know. And I mean, they don't call Tom Petty Southern Rock, do they? Of, no, I mean, not too many people. I'm sure someone has, but sure, you know, like when we got to, well, he he moved to L.A., so he he got to escape it. If I gotcha, if he'd stayed in Gainesville, but by that token, of course, REM's not Southern Rock either, and they stayed in Athens, Georgia. So. Mm-hmm. But you know, like we played in Seattle in '92, and and the guys from Nirvana wasn't around, but but Soundgarden, um, uh, Chris and Kim and Matt all came down, and then the guys from Pearl Jam, everybody but Eddie came down, mm-hmm. and it was normal and natural. Like we're just all bands, same age for the most part, and from two guys, two bands from Seattle, one from Atlanta. But our hang afterwards backstage was as normal as anything. Like we didn't look at them like you guys are part of Seattle and you get, you know, they weren't looking at us like, you know, where's your overalls. We were just talking about (laughs) music and drinking beer and hanging out. You know, it's, it's always been, you know, we took jellyfish out with us on our first tour. The first headlining theater tour we did, we had jellyfish as our opening band Mm -hmm. and we felt as connected to them as we would have ever felt to the bands. People said we were ripping off. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, to it. And, and we were just always kind of in our own lane and happy to uh, be a part of any world that would have us, you know, when you're, when you're a musician and you're paying your bills, man, you could do a lot worse than, you know, than, than, uh, being lumped in with other bands from your era or others. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like those kind of concerns. It, it, you know, I, I would admit Absolutely. When when MTV shifted away and you know, like our second and third album, MTV is like, yeah, we like that for the by the by the third video for our second album, they were like, Yeah, I think we're done with you guys. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, all you see is Nirvana and Pearl Jam. You're like, Oh, come on, man, what the fuck? What yeah. <laughs> I thought we had something, you know, and you can <laughs> yeah. get your feelings hurt a little bit, but I never blamed yeah. the other bands for that. It's like, oh wait, we're just a part of a fashion show and we were too dumb to recognize that early on. There's always the next big thing. Yeah. You know, I remember so clearly in like nineteen ninety four. We got an offer to play at the, at New Orleans Jazz Fest, or like, and or to go down during Jazz Fest and play at Tipitina's, like a tiny mm-hmm. club, like for, or or, or I think I think we were planning to do that, show up like unannounced at Tipitina's at midnight, and the promoter said, "Hey, well, let's put you, let's get Counting Crows there too, and we'll have a Crow Fest." And we were like, "What?" <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Counting Crows. And then at the same time, I remember once there was a report on MTV News, like Kurt Loder. Was like counting crows are doing this. He goes, let's check in with the crows right now. And I was like, I thought we were the crows. You know, you have these <laughs> moments where it's like, oh shit, you know, and you just realize like, oh, this is just like every other era of music. You're you're hot for a minute and then you're not. And uh, what are we going to do about it? And and you know, to our credit, and and oftentimes we would you know step on our own feet trying to make sure everyone knew that we didn't care. But we all did understand. Well, the thing to do is just keep working. You know, it's like. Yeah. It'll come back around, and when it does, we'll probably be more ready for it the next time. Yeah. I I know that I remember watching an interview um, where you were saying that there were so many things that, that you didn't realize, part of the stuff that you're talking about now that you didn't realize 
the industry or, or, or realize what it was. And a couple of things where you were saying, okay, if you're just in a local band, you don't have to deal with going out on tour and having crew and having families and, and all these things that, that you have to, to worry about. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you can pass on to other people who are looking to do what you did, where they want to be in a band and they want to be out there, you know, touring and, and they want to do this as a, as a career. What are some of the, the lessons that you've learned that, that you're kind of like, holy shit, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, there's a few things that, I mean, the most, the, the first thing that comes to mind, and I kind of touched on this earlier, is if you've got a plan B, then plan A ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and be completely reckless, but there's an awful lot of people fighting for that space. And if you aren't fully committed, you're just wasting everybody else's time and yours. Um, in terms of trying to make it, if you want to get on the road and be, a, you know, and it, it makes sense. Like I, I told my son when he was in, in high school, I said, yeah, you might have the best court vision on the team and you might be the best passer, but if people are working harder than you in practice, they're going to get more minutes. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he's 12. He's like, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, yeah, it does. What else is the coach going to go on? He wants to be, you know, a coach wants the guys that work the hardest, Talent will then sort itself out. But if you're not on the hard worker list, you're not even in the game. And if you're a, you know, the things you don't think about, this will sound a little weird, but you know, like when you're a band, your customer isn't your fan. Your customer is promoters. The promoter's customer is the fan. You know what I mean? Like if you want to boil it down to a certain level, now obviously a band's first priority should be its fans. Like you want to take care of those people. But in terms of how the business works, an awful lot of uh, artists have a great relationship with a promoter before they have fans. And the promoter makes sure that they have access to fans and builds that bridge. And mm-hmm. so if you are a band or an artist and you want to go out there and hit the road, just look at it like that. What's the promoter going to say? What's the promoter looking for? He's looking for someone that's going to work their ass off. You know, He's looking for somebody that he can count on to come back to his market three times a year. And then grow them so it's twice a year, and then eventually it's once every two years. But it's a big room, you know. Right. There's a there's a system in place that's been there for decades in how promoters work with you know local uh, radio stations and local TV buys and local media. And you know, I can remember like being at a gig on that first headlining theater tour, in 1991, and we were working with a guy named Don Fox, who's a legendary promoter from New Orleans and Memphis. His company's called Beaver Productions. Mm-hmm. And we had spent the afternoon at a rock radio station in town and the program director from the station walked into our dressing room and he saw Don Fox and they saw each other They're like, hey, hey, what's up? And like they were old friends. And I remember like as dumb as it sounds going, how do they know each other? Like, you know, like, <laughs> how do they know each other? And, and I said something to our manager, Pete, and Pete laughed and he goes, those guys have worked together for 25 years. Like. They're in each other's lane all the right. time. If Don Fox is trying to sell tickets, he's going to go take that program director to dinner and say, how can I get on your station? And it's not just about buying ads for the show. It's like, hey, play the song, dude. Play the song. Like you've got a record company person trying to get your song played. It never occurred to me that so are the concert promoters. It never. Mm-hmm. It just it didn't make sense to me that a guy from MTV is going to know the guy at the cluster of rock stations in the Midwest until I saw it. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is all just a, it's kind of a small business and everybody's got their own part of the room, but everybody's working together. And as the tours progressed over the years, like our second album came out and it was a really big album and it was a big sold out theater tour across the country. 
And by then I was recognizing it every day, like, oh God, this is just such a, this system was put in place a long time ago and we're just another boxcar on a very long train, you know, like, and these guys are all going to be here when we're gone, still doing their jobs. And I was like, wow. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not that I had linear thoughts about we're the center of the rock universe. I never thought that once, but I clearly had subconscious thoughts about, yeah, everybody's doing this because it's us. And then I realized, no, wait, this is their job. And we're just the band that's here on Tuesday. They got another Mm. show on Thursday. You know, yeah. I mean, we had a big problem in Scotland in 1991. We we had a huge, we were in Edinburgh and some fans were throwing coins at Chris on stage just to goad him. And they were clearly local musicians. They were dressed better than we were. We were like, man, <laughs> that guy's pretty cool. Well, it, it boiled to a head and Chris said, if that kid throws one more thing at me, I'm jumping, I'm jumping on him. And I said, go ahead, I got your back. And he literally took that to mean, no, go ahead. He turned around and ran and jumped into the third row of the theater. Oh, my God. And started pounding this kid. Well, the whole audience turned on him. And I had to jump up and jump in there and get him out of a chokehold. He was getting his ass kicked. And I go wading in there. And our bass player, uh, Johnny Colt, the three of us are in there like, three on 400 all of a sudden, you know, and it's like, it was crazy. And we got it the hell out of there and we get back to our hotel and the people had called the police and the promoter is on the phone with our tour manager saying the police are involved. The kids are, you know, if they press assault charges, you know, your singer jumped into the third row and landed on this kid's head. Right. He, we're going to have to come and take him to jail. Like that's what was going on. And I remember we were back at our hotel and we're like, holy shit, we're going to go to jail in Scotland, you know? <laughs> and and then the next phone call came and the promoter called our tour manager back. He said, it's all good. I worked it out. They're not going to press charges. And he said, oh my God, thank you. What'd you do? He goes, I gave him extreme tickets for next week. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, and we were like, ex- wait, what? Like, you you just paid him off with extreme tickets, you know, and it was, and, and, and of course the joke is I'd rather go to jail, you know, than extreme tickets. And, right. but, but again, it's like, it sounds so silly, but honestly, like I remember sitting there and going like, yeah, it's all, we're just all in the same game. It's all just whatever. And, you know, it's not just about the black crows. There's a whole big wide world that we're getting a tiny glimpse of uh, the music world. And yeah, it, it was just, I, I look back on a lot of those things. Anyway, all this to say, to get back to your original point, if you want to, if you just want to see if it's fun, take my word for it. It's fun. Right. If you right. want to see if it's hard work, trust me, it's very hard work. You have to be virtually, uh, you got to be mani- maniacally obsessed and possessed with the notion that you deserve a seat at that table. And yeah. if you aren't willing to fight for it, then then just stop. You're kidding yourself. Um, uh, we always knew bands that were better than us, more polished and that had good plans. You know, they, their friend was a manager and they were building it club by club and brick by brick, but you could see them and recognize, yeah, but they don't have that thing. Cause like they, they will blow off a gig if one of them can't get out of work. Right. And that never happened in Mr. Crow's garden. If somebody said you have to come to work, I just quit the job. Right. And, and right. didn't, and didn't think twice about it. It wasn't like a. I wasn't 
shoving my finger in the man's face to be a punk. It was like, oh, okay, no, never mind. Well, I quit then. It was just like, ah, screw you. I got a gig in Chattanooga to play for four people. I right. can't, I can't take this job with good money. You know, it's yeah. like that. That's just where you have to come at it from. Um, it's really is important. there is there enough is there enough money in music now that that you would advise that still? I don't know. I, I have no idea. I mean, just for a lot of reasons. One, I'm you know I'm 55 and I'm not about to hop in a van and go play 200 shows. Right. And two, would no you jump telling, in a bus and go play 200 shows? If it was the right band, if it was yeah. my if it was my band, I wouldn't go do that like as a hired musician. Um, right. I I don't have that mindset. Like I I could go fill in for a band. I could go play with another band for a couple weeks or maybe a couple months if it was if it was pretty relaxed schedule. And if there were some nice amenities and all that, but my mindset of to be a working musician and just be like, yeah, yeah, I need the gig. Like, no, that's, that's never going to happen. When you've had your own, when you've been in your own band and done your own thing for so long, like my band trigger hippie, I'll hop in the van and go play a month of shows right now, but that's my band. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not someone else's world that I'm just filling a role for. Mm -hmm. I I don't have that mindset on any level. Yeah. I never have. I, I, I always, I felt guilty about that for a long time that I never, you know, I didn't want to be a side man, didn't want to go do the grind. I was like, it's either my band or yeah, like you said, I'll go fill in and do a couple things here and there. But like, I'm not, I just, I'd rather do my own thing. It's why I own well, my own businesses and it's like, yeah, same no, deal. Ex- yeah, it's exactly right. Self-awareness is a pretty important thing in life and why fake something? I mean, I'm, I'm much better suited to, to do things that, that, I don't have to think a whole lot about it. If you're trying to shoehorn yourself into something. And again, that's very different than, than someone in their twenties trying to figure out their own way. But like I said, I'm 55 years old, man. I'm, I know exactly who I am by now. And I know right. where I, and I know where I'm at my best. Right. And you know, my worst gig in trigger hippie is going to be a hell of a lot better than me filling in for X, Y, or Z. That mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, it's like, I, I am driven by things beyond just getting the part right. Um, and for a lot of, for a lot of side men, uh, it's a great way to make a living. I mean, it's like for, for a lot of people, they look at it like, well, I'm good at this instrument and I really enjoy playing so I can make a living doing this or I can go work at a, a, an office job. Well, great. Go be a side man. But that was just yeah. my life. Uh, fortunately for me took a turn before I was, you know, 25 years old where I, I just had my own path. You know, I had my own band. I had my own uh, way to approach things. I mean, like everything we talked about, my approach to drumming does not say sideman on any level. It's right. like this guy needs to be in his own band because nobody else would hire him. I mean, <laughs> I can play. I, I could certainly go play in a ton of bands now. But in my early 20s, not not a chance. I had to be in my own band. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh with with uh speaking of tours and things like that i know that now well they were before the pandemic but black hose were back out touring and you publicly were like okay that's sort of sad what they're doing with with this new lineup what do you think i mean what was the reason that they completely replaced every single person in the band well i think they had a pretty strong idea that nobody wanted to be around them i mean if they had asked me i would have said no if they'd asked johnny i and jeff they would have said no i mean nobody's interested in playing with them that's been there before right um certainly from the shake your money maker lineup that five piece band uh doesn't have a chance because th- those bridges were burned detonated pissed on salted and raised years ago um <laughs> right 
you know, and, and it also, but but that said, it, it also speaks to their motivation because if you want to go out and celebrate something from 30 years ago, you at least make the phone call and you at least suggest this is a genuine celebration of something that we all shared and that connected with people. You know, music right. is music is lightning in a bottle and why something connects and why the next thing doesn't is oftentimes a tremendous mystery. Why this band and not that band? I mean, we've all got a million examples like that in life where you look at and go, this band is amazing and nobody cares. And that band, eh, but they seem to be, you know, everybody's favorite thing right now. And right. what happened for us with Shake Your Moneymaker was a combination of so many things outside of the band. And and the fans that liked it, they liked it for reasons that are as varied as the number of people that own that record. And so to go out and say, we're just going to do this with a whole new group of people, it's like, now, granted, I, I think if you put that original band in a room together, it would take a while to sound right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That band hasn't played together since 1991 with Jeff Cease involved and not since 97 with Johnny Colt. But that said, I got to think there would be more chemistry there than hiring three new dudes and hashing it out at SIR for a minute. But uh, that's all just, you know, it's also, like I said, but, but the fact is that was never going to happen. It's not something that is a concern to any of the rest of us. I mean, the band, you know, when when the band when 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 anybody is done with the Black Crows, believe me, they're done with the Black Crows. So right. I don't begrudge the brothers on any level for doing this. I think it's their best option mm-hmm. and and they have every right to do it. Go ahead. I mean, that that's still my record. That's still my music. It's it, I don't have to play it to always be the drummer for the Black Crows. It's fine. It's great. Yeah. We had a we had a great band and we had tremendous highs and some just crippling lows and it was everything and more than anybody could have hoped for so it's fine with me but to me the black crows ended in february of 2014 and you know my math tells me that's over seven years ago so it's it's uh you know it's it's been longer i mean the original run of that band was from 90 to 97 and then Mm -hmm. it was always a little different after that it was never quite the same well, it's been that long since I have played a show with the Black Crows. It's 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 not ancient history, but it it, it ain't exactly right over my shoulder either. Yeah. Do you think that the people who who you yourself included who stuck around for so long was it because of the moment you stepped on stage? There was some magic that was happening on there. Sure, you're and always you could just sh- kind of see past all the stuff that was happening. You know. Yeah prior yeah. to and after the yep. show. Yep, yep, 100%. I mean, you'd have you'd have nights where the, you know, that 2 hours would literally make the next 36 survivable, you know, like right. manageable or whatever and and it really every everybody, it, it, every, not just me, not just the people who are not there anymore, but the brothers themselves. Everybody in that band kidded themselves and told themselves it's still worth it as long as X Y and Z because nobody wants to just quit their own band. It's it's gut-wrenching to realize like I got to, this isn't working for me anymore. I got to go. Right. It's, it's terribly difficult, especially when every couple of days you walk off stage and you're floating. You know what I mean? Like that's, you don't get that feeling anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, everybody, everybody had that experience of, well, the gigs are, they still make it all worthwhile. You know, the, the session, when it would click, you'd hear a track and there's just something in there that's undeniable. You go, man, I'm not going to ever feel this anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and everybody's misguided concepts about what loyalty is and about what brotherhood is and about what, you know, commitment is. You know, you can talk yourself into a whole lot of things for just the occasional, you know, sizable breadcrumb. 
Yeah. And you had made mention that everything happened to all of you when you were so young and, and that was a lot of the problem with the band. Do you think that was the crux of the problem though? That, that you had all of this early, you had all, all of the success when you were relatively young. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't earn it at all. I mean, uh, you know, we worked hard. I, I don't sure. think, I don't know we could have done anything differently on Shake Your Moneymaker and Southern Harmony, but uh, it, it just, it just builds in a sense of entitlement way too early in life, you know? Right. Um, and it's, it's in the water and it's in the air of the band, you know, like years later we're playing to a, a fraction of the people that were coming to see us five years earlier. And we're telling ourselves, oh, they just don't get it. And it's like, no, they get it. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they get it pretty clearly. Maybe we're the ones that don't get it. You know, it's, uh, right. it's, I don't care who you are, you know, immediate fame and success is never a good thing. And, yeah. you know, it's easy to look back and say, if we had, well, we'll put it this way. REM had the greatest career ever, and I'll tell you why. Because every record they put out sold more than the one before it. Yeah. You know, for years and years. I mean, they were over 10 records in, I think, before that streak snapped. It's crazy. It's incredible. We were the exact opposite. Every record the Black Crows ever released sold fewer copies than the one before it. That's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow, man. It's brutal. Yeah. It's the uh, it's the un REM of careers. Trust me. <laughs> Do you think and, that there will be any more bands like that that just skyrocket right to the top because of the because there's no radio? There's no. I mean, there's radio, but there's you know, radio's not making bands and and MTV's not making bands um, anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't see how it could happen. Um, yeah. You know, bands will build. Uh, I mean, there's bands right now out there that sell out big clubs and small theaters that I've never heard of. And I, you know, like I, I have a nephew, uh, Jeff Gorman, who's got a band called Illiterate Light, and they're a tremendous band. They're from Harrisonburg, Virginia, and they're on Atlantic Records. They put an album out in the fall of '19, and they've been putting out their own music for years before that. They're they're just tremendous. Uh, no nepotism in this opinion at all. Trust me, because mm -hmm. when they weren't very good, I used to try to talk myself into it, and then they figured it out. And I was <laughs> like, oh my god, I I got to find you a real manager and an agent and a label because I can't help you anymore. Like you're you right. you're you got to do this. Um, but you know they they go out and open for they like a year and a half ago. Jeff would tell me, oh, we're going out with so-and-so and we're playing a bunch of two and 3,000 seaters. And I'm like, I've never even heard of these guys. He's yeah. like, oh yeah, they've just been grinding away out there. So bands build it up. Uh, but but honestly, by the time a band hits my radar, they've probably already been working really hard for a couple of years. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So let's talk about what you got going on now. So you have, uh, I know you have um, Trigger Hippie and so, and then you have your, is your is your show also a podcast or is it just on on Westwood it's, One? No, it's on it's Westwood One Accumulus. It's just a terrestrial radio show called Steve Gorman Rocks, and it's right. five five nights a week, uh, seven to midnight on the East Coast, six to eleven Central, and then you know as it heads out west, whatever different stations. Some stations play it uh, at different times. Uh, we're on about fifty stations, and it's it's classic rock. You know, it's the sweet spot for classic rock right now is like mid seventies to mid eighties. So. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a, but you know, since the pandemic hit and everybody's had to change the way we do everything, um, I, it's a show that I do at home. You know, I do it, uh, so nice. <laughs> it's well, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty great. I mean, um, but it's of course by necessity, uh, but you know, we're, I'm uploading 
the files, you know, like in real time, um, mm-hmm. a little bit ahead. It's not live, but it's as close to live as we can get it without risking think- things going sideways. Um, and then my band Trigger Hippie, we also put out an album in the fall of 2019 and we were touring and building and, and getting ready to just have a really, really busy 2020 when everything ended. So our last gig was, I think, March 7th of 2020. And we're playing this Sunday night in Nashville. We have our first gig in you know, 14 months, uh, which is pretty nice. Got a few nice. things lined up for the summer and then looking at a bunch of dates in the fall. And then uh, absolutely 2022, we're hoping to be a pretty busy year again. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And people can check that out. They can go to triggerhippie.com. Where can they find the the radio show? SteveGormanRocks.com. Steve and then Trigger Hippie is spelled with a Y on the end, H-I-P-P-Y. But yeah, we're easy to find online. Okay. And we'll I'll link to that in the in the show notes as well. So Yeah, right on. Well, Steve, thank you for taking the time to chat, man. I've uh, I've wanted to I've wanted to have you on for a while and I've been listening to your drumming since I was a, a, a you know, a teenager. So I appreciate you coming on to chat and uh, and keep doing what you're doing. And a uh, big shout out to George Slepic for connecting us as well. Oh, right on. Yeah, that's right. That was that was George doing that. So, uh, yeah, man, it's a pleasure. I'm happy to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, of course. And uh, stay well, and hopefully we can actually chat in person sometime soon. Right on. Cheers. Good deal. There you have it, the one, the only Steve Gorman. And you can check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 617. Also, please do me a favor. Leave a rating. Leave a review. I haven't seen one pop up there in a little while. And that lets people know that they should be listening to this podcast. And also, I want some feedback. Um, So I'm actually in the process of rebuilding the website. And there's some other stuff in the works that, that I think will be beneficial to all the listeners and also just want to hear from you let me know if you have thoughts or comments or ideas or people you want to hear on the podcast or topics that you want to hear on the podcast things like that let me know you can just email me i'm at nick at drummersresource.com or anywhere on social i'm pretty easy to find so hit me up and other than that that's all i got so until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.